0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today, we're thrilled to have an extraordinary guest with us, a visionary leader who has left an incredible mark in the world of entrepreneurship. Jacques is the founder of Community VC Roundup, which helps investment to be accessible to everyone, not just those with connections. His name is synonymous with fostering talent, nurturing ideas, and building successful startups from the ground up. Having experienced the highs and lows of entrepreneurship himself, he's dedicated to creating platforms and spaces where inspiring entrepreneurs can thrive. Ladies and gentlemen, let's dive into the compelling journey of the dynamic, the innovative, the inspiring, Jock Fairweather. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Thanks, much. I better say something quickly. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually one of the co-CEOs and head of strategy and growth at a company called Vest. That's my actual role. Okay, Cool. The community VC thing is actually like my philanthropic approach to the same thing. So oh. I have a re- I have a real role, um, which I adore and in essence is gonna be the manifestation of everything community VC mm. will be mm-hmm. in a in a in a real business and global entity. But community VC is sort of like um it's not a side hustle. It it, it actually works with B D and growth for Vest clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I use it as sort of like, yeah feel good.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, I would love to dive in to each individual, one of your ventures and your journey that led you to where you are today. So, um, just starting off, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, um, what led you to starting your very first company, which I believe was the luxury shoe brand Mm. in Europe. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I suppose like first and foremost, my entire identity probably is wrapped around entrepreneurship and the outputs of that, which is unhealthy in a sense, the other part of my identity, um, which has become the most important thing is trying to be the most amazing dad for Florence. Uh, and I suppose all of the, all of my future ventures from now onwards are all about sort of wealth building and building a better future for her. And because of my experience, that's really going to be, uh, channeled through, um, You know, the platform that we're building with Vest and the skill set that I have for Community VC to enable myself and others to get involved with companies that are trying to change the world that they are really, really aligned with. Mm. Um, In terms of my very first business, the Luxury Women's Shoe Label, I suppose I I think people have heard this heaps of times probably, but I started drawing shoes maybe when I was four. Uh, There's no real reason. I was always very artistic uh, and I'm good at drawing, like, or I was good at drawing structural things. And so I'm good at drawing cars. I'm good at drawing shoes, buildings, things like that. Uh, And I wanted to, basically, I wanted to play a professional sport or I wanted to design women's shoes. And I got pretty injured uh, in sports and sort of deterred from from different reasons and decided when I finished school, I was just going to pursue... Uh, the women's shoes thing. Uh, so I didn't have any background at, at all in fashion. I mean, I just went to a private school here. I didn't, I mean, I fit in in terms of with with friends and sports and et cetera, but I didn't fit into the curriculum. I just sort of liked doing my own thing. I like playing computer games a lot and I like doing artsy things. Anyway, so uh, really the, you know, the biggest reason for me going, moving overseas uh, beyond the fact that uh, luxury women's fashion is much, much bigger in places like Paris and London and New York than it is here, uh, was my mum. She always fostered me to believe in myself and do something different and do whatever made you happy. So I moved over to uh, London sort of pretty quickly after school. I mean, I must have been 18, uh, I guess. Moved into a share flat there and started at the London Culture Fashion which which was a really interesting experience, and we were just speaking about it then before the pod went me we? uh, about sort of playing to your strengths and farming out your weaknesses, and I suppose like a strength that I didn't know I had, except it just became obvious while I was there was just how different I was. I was a, like the only Australian that I remember. I was one of the only straight guys. I was sort of like big, muscly footy player, whatever. I just didn't fit in, and that sort of built its own. You know, um, myth around it, and people always spoke about me and looked at me differently, and and so on. So I just tried to leverage that as much as possible, and the you know it's not a it's not a trick because I really really liked these people, but the the sort of key to my success was that. And so when I was at the shoe school, I used to get there early, um, and the technicians that worked there, so the the they were all guys, but the guys that fixed the machinery. Uh, they had been there for like, I don't know, some of them 40 years. So that means Charlotte Olympia and all of these really incredible designers, maybe even a whoever had, had all gone through uh, the shoe school and known these guys and learnt from these guys. Whereas the design school teachers were all on like rotation, yearly rotation. Uh, so instead of focusing on, on the design, I focus on the making and, and using my hands and getting to know these, these guys. And I figured that that was the best way to get in with the designers, to learn from like whoever was doing well, Kurt Geiger, Kat McConey, whoever. And so I sort of built friendships with them talking about soccer and, you know, whatever football rather, sorry, and used them to sort of get intros to these designers, to uh, inevitably go and do internships for them to learn about, um, you know, the, the financial makeup of the shoe game and meet distributors and. Uh, meat factories and et cetera. And I sort of just used that uh, that kind of like organic hustle, if you will, to sort of make it all the way to convincing a factory to making my first um, collection and then meeting the guy in Switzerland who ended up buying into the company. And all of this stuff was just like mm, organic slash, you know, a lot of consistent hustle and trying uh, and putting myself out there and just trying to like lean on my strengths as often as often as possible and it all just sort of like luckily played out.
0: So what does hustle look like for you during that period? Was it um, emailing? Was it what differentiates you in that experience or that environment compared to anyone else?
1: It certainly wasn't uh, what I what I know about now which is, you know, legitimate strategic prioritization and being effective with your time. Uh I I went for brute force and volume, uh, which which isn't, you know, it's certainly not ideal, but taught taught me a lot about work, work ethic and et cetera. And I sort of just believed that if I worked the longest and spoke to the most people and tried the hardest, it would all play out fine. Mm. Which which in a sense was true. Uh because I think <clears throat> As the first, I remember the first lecture in London College of Fashion. They basically said, like, no one in this room is going to make it. You just, you just go and get an internship, and then you end up being a designer for someone. And good luck. Like they literally said something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, the the main gift that I've always had, and and I'm I'm always trying to figure out how I can, you know, pass this on to my daughter is just unlimited and inevitable self belief. And so they're like, you can't do it. I'm like, well, of course I can. Well, how did X or Y do it? Of course I can do it. I'll figure it out. And so it was just brute force. I don't know, drawing the most shoes, turning up to the most shows, trying to meet the most people, trying to get in the most doors, sending the most emails to shops, turning up to try and like um, accidentally bump into the buyers from every shop as often as possible, just like anything, um, anything possible to, to get in. I've got plenty of stories of that. But I think it was just, it was literally brute force. The the end game was luck. Mm. Um, The sort of Swiss encounter and all of that, that was definitely luck. But in saying that, I was also at a bar putting myself out there, still talking about shoes, still trying to like get through doors and whatever at all times. Mm. So there's still, you know, the consistency of hard work is still really important, I think.
0: So summarising that, experience of that very first business for you is, um, essentially showing up, um, being extremely dedicated and persistent, and then an element of luck in
1: Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And what parts of that, if you had gone back, would you have improved upon just so that, you know, those listening who can now understand every, what I'd love to do is tackle every piece of your journey... And what lessons you learned from each individual part, because there's so many entrepreneurs out there who are going on that journey. And so, you know, if there's any, um, things that they can learn from, um, that would obviously help them tremendously.
1: I think, I think there's no question that whatever it is you choose to do, you have to be sort of wholly and solely dedicated to it and actually really believe in it, whatever it is, whether I believe that I could be the most famous high-end luxury women's shoe designer or. You know, whatever uh, you have to like, truly believe that because people can see if if you don't, and you have to be completely dedicated. It's even better if you've been in that uh, in that industry or that vertical or whatever for a long time, which means you intimately know it. You probably have you know some core strategic connections and and so on. I think the biggest lesson from I, I've been thinking about this uh, a couple of the really really important lessons about shoe the shoe journey that I learned. Uh, One which is typical in tech startups as well is having really, really strong customer understanding and insights Mm. and having an absolute sort of focus around that. Mm. So, well, what I used to do and what was the most common thing in, let's say, shoes, in, in most fashion, but in shoes, was you sort of Uh, hear from all sorts of women. They get excited. You're doing women's shoes, whatever. And then you tell me something about shoes you love. And then a 6 year old lady does and blah, blah, blah. And you get this enormous spectrum of what everyone wants. And so then you do some ballet flats and you do some this and you do some that and you do some this and you do some that. Um, And then you get all of the same inputs about like uh, sort of styles and looks and blah, blah, about the runways and whatever's trending, and and it all sort of mixes in to your brain, and then you sort of try to build something that's good for everyone, and so you'd make this collection, this twenty-seven piece, three-color whatever collection to take and show shops, and so you've spent could be fifty thousand pounds, like just making the collection to go and show shops, who may or may not care,
2: mm.
1: right? That's an insane output of time and money for absolutely like zero guarantee of upside. Right. And so I did that a couple of times. I mean, it doesn't matter what the quantum of the the money was, but the approach was crazy because there was no focus at all. Mm. And in, if I look in hindsight, really like the commonality of the brand was my face. That's it. Nothing else really like the name and the face, but there was no consistency in the brand or anything like that. So if I went back, I would take and I'm simplifying it but I would take like a Doc Martens or a Converse or a something an Air Jordan or whatever approach where you have like One. basically a style for a particular type of user and you just own that segment yeah. you just absolutely hammer that home there's no question if I went back I would do because it means I'd know how to get to my target market and sell through better I'd you know I could build a community around them so it's easier. Everything becomes easier. They tell more people. There's less marketing expense. There's less upfront costs. I probably don't need distributors. You know, there's all these things that would have made what I did so much more effective. And and in, and I know for a fact in hindsight that if I didn't meet the Swiss guys, I would have just run out of money. Like that's a fact. Yeah. It just all would have gone to shit. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, the ironic thing is, the thing that worked was using my name and my face, but not everyone has that uh, luck of the timing where it was just like an Australian rugby guy, blah, 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 whatever the story was, just sort of suited that exact time and space. Yep. Uh, if I went back, yeah, the focus would have been key. It would have made it a trillion times easier.
0: So what, <clears throat> what exactly happened to this business?
1: Well, uh, so yeah, so I, I I got um, quite a significant chunk bought in to by a Swiss private equity group. Uh, and then the the next lesson basically was except I learned a lot about private equity, which was really interesting, obviously. But the next mistake I I made, I suppose, is as part of that, I gave up control of the second most there's only really two two important key functions of, of the shoe brand. one is like the brand. And then the other one is actually like the production and the quality control of the shoes. And I, I maintained control of the brand and whatever and did all the PR and everything was good and Vogue and la, la, la. But the um, back office stuff, the quality control, the, the manufacturing, et cetera, that's what I handed over as part of that deal. <clears throat> so they did some sort of sweat work as well um, because that's that's what I was weak at and I don't like doing. So I handed that over and had over all of that control. And and the, you know, the TLDR of that is my experience was Swiss people, particularly Swiss private equity people, don't like dealing with family-run Italian manufacturers because the Swiss are like acute and time-sensitive and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the Italians are like chill. And they're like, yeah, Domani, it will be done tomorrow, or whatever. And we're like, yeah, but the shoes are due in harrods yesterday and they're like damani damani and so the that relationship and a few of those relationships that were operating in that i had uh, like i used to go and stay with like the italian mama in mainland venice and literally stay at her house and then go to the factory with her in the day like that relationship worked not very scalable but worked the relationship that the swiss brought in with like lvmh quality control x lvmh quality control people and all of this blah, 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 contract, it was just a nightmare. And you basically, like our experience was you get blacklisted with these major retailers. If you deliver the wrong thing, deliver late, etc. And so we'd sort of built up, you know, quite a lot of connections into amazing distributors and then you know, basically ruined it in a season or two. And that was that. So I came home.
0: Wow. So it was completely out of your control. After that. Well, do they still sell your yeah, shoes? No, now?
1: no. no. I actually, the whole the whole group shut down. I think they burnt seven hundred million or something <laughs> Swiss francs. Yeah, um, not not that I know the whole the whole story, but I know that they don't they don't sell them. And yeah, was it as the founder, or CEO, or whatever? Like the buck stops with you, inevitably. And so that's what, that's really what did destroy me was because that stuff became out of control. And so I moved to Milan for a while, like to, to be next to the factory, literally like lived next to it and did all of these things to try and claw it back. And that last sort of year or so just totally destroyed me. Like absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely destroyed me.
0: Because it's seeing something that you spent so long building just crumble to the ground in front of you and there's nothing you
1: can do. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much.
0: So, um, moving from that, uh, what happened following, was it, what was the next business venture following that? So you came back to Brisbane? Mm,
1: Yeah, I, um, well, uh, following that, I, I probably couldn't, couldn't get out of bed for three months or something. I reckon I was so in so much trouble, uh, and then for about a year, you know, I didn't drink. I just played golf and did gym, and did nothing stressful or something. And towards the back end of that, I think actually my mum, again, she brought she'd been traveling and she'd brought back a brochure of some sort of incubator or something in in London. It was like, oh, this is cool, and I started sort of looking at it, and we had some money and whatever, so we basically just started exploring. <clears throat> This concept. So I'm talking to some friends, whatever. And I just had this whole experience, right? And most of my friends were still here just doing the normal route, like uni route yeah, whatever. And they're just finishing uni and I've just finished this whole yep. adventure, five, yep. you know, four or five years, four or five years kind of thing. And they were all, you know, they wanted to start different things. I don't know what. Um, little uh, shirt fashion labels and whatever else they were starting. I can't remember. And they had so many questions that I, like, I guess I knew the answer to I'd learned from, from this experience. And I, I sort of seen this concept and I was like, well, what if like we buy a house and you all move in, like, it'll be cool, a cool house thing, about eight of you or whatever. And you pay rent, like rent plus a bit of overs. And I'll just spend all my time, like helping you, trying to figure out the intros, guiding you, whatever, whatever. So I started looking and then as we were looking for places and you know, building up the idea. I was talking to more people and they're like, fuck yeah, I'd do that, or whatever. And so we just kept looking, looking. And then we were looking for this house, but then there was only eight friends, but 30 people wanted to do this with us. I'm not sure they all wanted to move in, but they wanted to be part of this sort of whatever. Back mm. then, I'm not sure what it was called an incubator, but it doesn't matter. That kind of thing.
0: And the just kept evolving,
1: co working, whatever.
0: Exciting kind of entrepreneurship lives. Cool you know?
1: Entrepreneurship, creative, whatever we were going with. And then, yeah, anyway, we ended up getting the oldest Japanese restaurant in Australia and by by the time we we're about to open there must have been I can't remember now it could be 50 50 people that have signed up to be part of this like creative club thingy that that we'd sort of created um, yeah and it was pretty amazing I think like this this uh this pushes me to what what one of the, like the next core lesson is uh which is us like a an advancement on the shoe the shoe lesson that I gave, which was <clears throat> well, there's two two piece, pieces to it. One is there was sort of a, a very early stage there where we were probably my friend a friend and I, who were like running it, he was doing events and socials and all that shit. And I was trying to do the <clears throat> mentor and and organize all of that. We were probably paying ourselves and pocketing about 20 grand a month something like really quickly, super quickly. So if you think about that, two best mates with mostly our other best mates, with other people who are very aligned to us, hanging out in a building, paying off the, the mortgage, in a sense, of this building, plus getting paid, plus pocketing money, plus all we were doing was doing fun shit, like literally talking to cool people and running shucked oyster. Um, cocktail nights or whatever, like just shit like that. Yeah, that is an amazing setup. Mm. Like you can't ask for much more. Yeah. In terms of work life balance yeah. achievement, blah blah, like yeah. that is awesome. Anyone, yeah. it's gold. Yeah. Nine nine percent people would sign up to yeah. do that to have yeah. that. Um, but I still sort of had, I don't know, maybe I, I can maybe it was maybe it was ego. I don't know. Something I wanted to do more that wasn't enough. Um, and so. <clears throat> we sort of started looking and expanding it, having another building, blah, 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 which... So first first and foremost, when I got into it, I didn't know what I wanted to get out of it. Mm. And so I, I, I painted that picture and, it, and everyone would want to do that picture. But it wasn't the picture that I wanted. Like I wanted to be better than the one I saw in London, which had many spaces and whatever. I just like, hadn't really considered it.
0: Yeah, you felt maybe you are going backwards compared to where you were. Exactly. So you wanted to... Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so instead of instead of for example putting someone else instead of me doing the job I was doing pocketing some money paying off the building whatever and going to do something else I think I wanted to do instead I started looking at other buildings and expanding right and, and in essence if you look at the exact makeup of that building that we had, the way we serviced it, who was there the position of the building like everything about it all the nuance about that if I, if I take it to uh, the substation Paddington, the building layout, the uh, type of people, the people who were gonna run it, everything about it is actually different. Okay, so the same underlying model, we charge people for desks or, or whatever it is, but every other bit about it was completely different, like completely different. And I didn't think about what the model that we had built, At scale, could or would look like, and so instead, we just were opportunistic. Did substation totally different? Did the capital in the city totally different? Did the Springfield one totally different? Like, we've now got six different buildings, six different markets, six different operational styles, six different needs, six different fucking everything. It's not that it's six different businesses almost, Mm. which is crazy to do. Uh, And so, like that was, in a nutshell the next mistake, because we hadn't considered any of that. And then you we got to this stage where we, we were the biggest, easily, the the best operationally, I would say too, but we were like, the, the unit economics of what we are doing didn't check out. So I had like my best, I actually had most incredible staff, but like, let's say my very best staff member, I reckon in terms of people she was looking after in space, she was looking after, she was like a quarter utilised I'd say, mm. and even my like, you know, quote unquote, worst staff member, who was also really excellent, was probably only 75% utilised. And so we hadn't planned any of the scale, but then I sort of obviously clued on to that because it was, it was so, we were doing so much good work and so many good things, but not really making as much money as we should. Nowhere near, in fact. So, we realized actually what we needed to do was, uh, in essence, combine all the buildings together in one so that we could get the economies of scale required for this to be a proper good business. Yep. And so, we started that journey. Uh, and that's a whole nother story of, of fuck ups. Basically, I didn't have a plan B, okay. I didn't want to do what we were doing anymore. And so, I put all our eggs in a basket of this consolidation. Uh, and basically, actually, I got fucked by a Property Group in Goldman Sachs. Uh, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. But the the key message is like going in to what you're going to get into, knowing like where is going to be your happy state and what are you actually what's your objective, what are you actually yeah. trying to get to, and how will that feel, and what will that be like operating it, and blah blah blah. And the second bit is if you're trying to scale anything, like actually understanding that at scale should look
0: like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I didn't go into e- to it with either of those
0: things. Mm. And that's where companies like McDonald's, for example, mm. do it really well where every single McDonald's you go to is exactly the same mm-hmm. to the point where even once you see the M, it already starts that habitual mm. cycle where now you start salivating, you drive in, so it becomes like yeah. a routine, you know what you're getting. Yeah. And then that's easy to duplicate because yeah. it's just copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, yeah, paste, copy, exactly. paste
1: exactly yeah so <clears throat> the i think because you're, you obviously you got to ask about what what was next and what was next but one of the things that i don't that i really don't want to neglect here yeah. is the and i've thought about this very deeply you better better believe it <clears throat> is the way that if whatever you're doing isn't isn't going to work out and and however that that's going to sort of culminate the way that you go about the end of it is going to be like the key anchor to what you're able to do next, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. So uh, at the end of the shoes, like, and this is all hindsight, of course, but now I'll tell you, you can think about it. At the end of the shoes, I went all in. I sacrifice Every, anything and everything to try and make that thing work. There was literally, there couldn't have been a thing I could have done more. It's actually impossible, I'm sure. And so uh, he he wouldn't care and he wouldn't listen to this either, but the main guy from the P group, if I came back to him with another concept, he would have backed me in mm. because we will learn all the lessons and he knows that I would do more than anyone mm. to make the next thing work.
0: Because okay. there is no plan B.
1: There, yeah, bad. there wasn't a plan B. Yeah. At all, or or I just left. There was no, no stones left on yeah. him So I think that that was really important, and that gave me the anchor of confidence to try yeah. something again. Although it worked out good for me, mm. really good, but it didn't work out exactly as I, as good as I'd planned. So then when <clears throat> we started the little Tokyo thing, like I had that, I had that, uh, what do you call it? like that infrastructure set in my mind that. Well, no one's going to try harder than me and I've learned all of these things. So, like, I can have another go and it should be better this time. And it was. It was more money, more growth. So, you know, it was like okay. twice, as, twice as profitable, twice as big, twice as fast. What? The second time.
0: Wow, okay.
1: For sure. And the third time, for sure. Again, twice, twice, twice. At the end of Little Tokyo... Because you learn all these lessons, right? Yeah, and definitely. then you get a stronger network around you and
0: yeah. et cetera. But just so just with Little Tokyo, you had six
1: mm. at the end. Pretty sure it was six, yeah. Yeah, okay. 585 companies or something. It was a lot. Wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. You mean staff, 580 staff?
1: No, no. Companies because we – What? Like a company oh, can have an office, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm with you now. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Yep.
1: Yep. The – between staff and advisors and whoever that we had to pay – However, it was probably 60 or something,
0: mm. I think. Would your main outgoings be rent? Yeah. But then at the end of the day, are you buying the infrastructure? No, And they did
1: that the first time. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. I think.
0: Because that's what McDonald's does as well. I think they're known for owning. Owning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If so, I went so back, it's, a, real estate it's a
1: thing, thing. <laughs> that I would have uh, considered for sure. Yeah. Uh, the crazy thing is there's a guy that I respect a lot and I like a lot, Chris Rolls, who runs Parlay Ventures.
2: Mm.
1: As soon as mm-hmm. I'd opened – substation, the second building. I think that was our second building. I met him for a chat and we are just talking about shit and he said just that. Oh, that's a really interesting model. You buy a building that's empty, fit it out, fill it, show that it's got a rent roll and then you sell it Hmm. for for whatever the upside is. Hmm. And he's like, that's an awesome model. You just take these shitty buildings Hmm. and fill them with people who think they're cool cool. and then flog them again. He's like, that's an awesome model, but I just ignored it because yeah. I was trying to build something better than WeWork and better than Y Combinator and whatnot. Mm.
0: Which I think didn't WeWork also go down?
1: No, no, they're still going. Yeah. They had a big fuck up, but yeah. anyway.
0: So what lessons you had learned from starting oh, all these? Oh, the anchor. Yeah, and and each business you learn more and more.
1: Yeah, 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 and so that off. so like the anchor of confidence. Although no, the, the lowest point I've had is at the end of Shoes. At the end of shoots, because that was like my first real go. That was my life stream, like gone, basically. My second lowest point ever. There's only really been two, I'd say, um, like seriously bad low points. Was around like the end of the end of little Tokyo, and I think <clears throat> at the end of that, I could have. Well, we did just hand back the keys to the, the owner, the landlords hand over the software we'd built to manage it all, um, and et cetera. Like, and just sort of wipe my hands and just gone, yeah, fuck it. I'm out. Like, good luck to everyone. But instead, so, so what I did was I took, I think three days, like when I knew we were fucked, I took three days off and I just rode an electric scooter or something and walked just around the scene. I was just walking. I was just calling all the people I respect and giving them the context and telling them about what's going on and asking their advice and whatever. And, And in the end, what I came to was that basically I should do the right thing. Yeah. And so I think the way that I handled the end of that is what gave me the strength to recover again. Because a lot of people have seen my journey or even like friends, let's say, close friends who are very successful, see my journey. and, And, you know, they make commentary circa. We've never seen someone get up from these things like you. And I think that the anchoring around the end of it is really important. And so when when you we were fucked, uh, I went into every single space and I did like a talk, in front a speech thing in front of everyone. I just told them the whole shit, mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, we gave the software back, gave the software that we'd built and owned to all the landlords, gave them plenty enough notice. I actually brought them on the journey maybe six months in advance, I think. It's a long time ago, but. Uh, handed everything over at least three months in advance, so that if they wanted a new tenant, they could find it. Paid the rest of that three months' rent, left all the staff members on, and went and spoke to every member. And we're like, "Hey, like you can stay here, and the landlord will have to make a decision if they want to, you know, continue operating a co-working incubator thing, or change the name and operate it differently, or just make everyone leave. But if any of you want to leave, we'll help you organize a new space and pay." for the rent, whatever you call it, like the, the the removalists. Yep. So we did a speech at every single one and then I got my staff to to make a list of who was and wasn't there. And then I spent like the next few days calling every single person who didn't turn up like hundreds who, who wasn't there for things because it was impromptu basically and basically leaving them a voice message explaining the story and then we finalised it with an email explaining what's the next steps, whatever, whatever. And so I could have wiped my hands clean but instead owned all of it and owned it like face-to-face mm. or as close to as I could with every single person there. And so heaps, of course, heaps of people were pissed off and, you know, whatever whatever goes on. But at least for myself and the people very close to me, making that kind of effort gave me the anchor to know, like, I'm a good person. I did the I was right doing thing. the right things and I tried really fucking hard and, whatever mistakes were made, and so if I come back and try something again, no one can hold it against me that like I'm a bad person or whatever yeah. is going on. It's just like it was an honest – I'm not even sure it was a mistake. We just got fucked by Goldman Sachs, and I don't want to mention the, the property company. But
0: yeah. So um, it's just essentially they increased the rent too much and you weren't able to cover costs.
1: We signed a, We signed a contract with them. I started closing the buildings, moving members, and then they bid too much for this building. Uh, so, so basically they had to get external financing uh, to pay for the building. And so they changed the base level of the contract by like, I can't remember, it was 35% or 32%, I think. And that made the break-even of this enormous building. I think it jumped it from 58% capacity for break-even to like 89 or something, I remember. I remember vividly like learning about that and then talking to the accountants and going, let's do the numbers. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much what happened.
0: With your second business as well, um, so you're essentially saying that what went wrong is, yeah, rental went up, they screwed you over. Um, but the benefit of that is that you closed relationships properly. So when you exited that business, you knew that you did the right thing. You closed everything off. And so moving on to your next business, um, you, were, you felt that, you were on top in that regard. You had, there was no bridges that you had burned.
1: Mm. Well, there certainly was uh, bridges that I'd burned, but okay. none that I thought mattered.
0: Okay. Uh, I
1: don't, you know, I don't suggest, I'm not certainly not suggesting burning bridges, but uh, it's absolutely in my makeup to, well, I have a like sort of very strong belief system and very strong opinions, which means I don't get along with some people. It also means like, when I do something, other people believe it when I say it. Uh, And there was some like public um, public, uh, fights that I had continuing because they were good. They were against competitors, they were whatever. And it's a very American style, but it worked for me and for us. But what it also meant was that I got built up as the guy winning and the aggressor and whatever, which also means when it doesn't go right, mm. you can get annihilated.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah, which is which and messes is is really... with your
0: identity because now who am I if I've been annihilated?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh I'm still exactly the same. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. The it's inbuilt in me and you know, I can't can't help it. But uh anyway, I, I think like the it, it's up to you. Like You have to be thoughtful about all all of these things because you can build businesses where you aren't the front, obviously, Uh, but I'm happy to be the front Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm cool with that accountability and and what happens. But yeah, that was painful. Uh, The the backlash I got from certain spheres and so on, like different newspapers and whatever that made doing the next thing really tough. Mm. And I won't mention his name either, but well, I know a few, but I know this one particular guy who had a, one of Australia's most iconic business fuck-ups. But he is an awesome person, amazing person. It's just – anyway, doesn't matter the detail. But it, this stuff's just happening. The papers start writing about me or whatever, and I met him in the street, and he was like, oh, yeah, of that size fuck-up, I think you got to take three years off, like three years off public. You can do shit, yeah. but three years off anything that's sort of like public-facing. public, public facing, Um yeah, business building, business doing, whatever. And he said, after three years, people forget that and give a shit anymore. Mm. And I sort of ignored him and I tried a couple of things and then someone in the network that hated me for whatever reason would leak these things to papers or whatever and they'd write articles about me like as I'd launched a new thing or as I was about to close the capital or whatever. It happened twice specifically. Lost a bunch of clients and lost 1.8 mil in seed investment. Like honestly, it was like, it couldn't have been chance because it was like the night before both times kind of thing or, you know, the morning of. And so well, I took his advice and I sort of basically went underground for, for quite a period. Still doing things, but <clears throat> in essence, taking it easy and reflect reflecting on exactly what it is I wanted to do and, and so on. I've never really taken a step because I've just been go, go, go. Yeah. I just find something, and I just want to win. And I took took time to think about, you know, like what I like, what I what I like doing, what I don't like doing, what I'm good at doing, what I don't like doing. Using that filter against uh, any like potential opportunities, I, I could do, you know, maybe working in VC, being a disaster recovery guy in private equity, you know, filtering it against anything I could be or or would want to be based on skills that I had. Uh, and it basically, you know, in a, in a nutshell landed that without understanding the full context of it, I want, I wanted to play in like the VC space. Uh, all of my experiences in early stage venture, uh, I've always had very good intuition with people, whether they're full of shit or not and, and so on. And a very good sense of what in a, in a macro, like in a macro trend and in terms of visions, Mm. what's possible and not probable and has a tailwind and, and whatever. And so I want to play in the VC space. So I sort of basically <clears throat> start exploring that.
0: Okay. So what does that look like at the moment? Now?
1: Yep. Okay. So I've been...
0: Or was there a few BC... yeah, a, There
1: was a few little steps in between. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like the, I suppose... Contextually, when we ran Little Tokyo, we also ran Little Argus, which was Flight Center's, uh venture fund. I, mm-hmm. I ran all the deal flow and DD with, that, with a group of guys from Flight Centre, obviously, yep. um, Chris, Robin, Colin. And so I learned a lot about, well, a lot more about BC and et cetera there and built good contacts. Obviously, there was the PE group from Switzerland, so I learned about PE there. And so I had all of this sort of experience and <clears> – <throat> To get my foot back in the door but keep it quiet, I started like writing in IMs, investment memorandums for people to, to raise money and help with their, you know, if you will, business plan, but their forecasts and whatever. Yep. And I wrote a few of them and there can be good money in that if you get the right clients and I'm pretty effective at it. So I did that, I was making started making some pretty good money and getting like it's I was doing a very referral based, if yep. you will. Yeah.
0: And the benefit of that, there's no outgoings because No, it's just, it's just you- time.
1: Yeah, and you can charge high for a lot yeah. for that time because it's… Valuable. It's yeah, well, very valuable. Think, let's just pretend, hypothetically, you pay 50 grand for this document and this help, and then you raise 2 million. Yeah. Who cares about the 50 grand? Not
0: 100%, yeah. yeah. And
1: I was flexible with payment or whatever. So did a bit of that. I started getting back into angel investing type stuff, just small checks early. Um, and then through one of the IMs… Um, one of the guys who was looking to invest in a company I wrote the IM for reached out to me and he's like the IM was awesome blah blah can I meet you Met him I'll just go short version of this and he's like met me and he's like oh but I do old school businesses you'll you'll hate this whereas I like cool venture shit power law outlier type stuff and he introduced me a guy who's basically setting up a quasi family office to invest in early stage tech startups so I met him and he gave me a job on the spot and I just started like doing deal flow on DD and helping with a bit of capital raising whatever for him. Uh, and through that, like it just so happened that I, well, actually I, it was an old contact of mine, but I landed a job being his, his investment manager of a portfolio of 48-ish companies they had. And One of the companies that they had is, was oh, like the investments that I made was Vest, which is this platform that is, all that I do really now. Okay. Um so they'd made a significant investment with a with another group, Venture Crowd, into this this platform. And um, I sort of just started leaning in more and more on that. Even though my job was the whole portfolio for this other group, uh Joseph Mark, I started leaning in really heavily on this because it's everything I believe in and mm. I've been each of the personas within what Vest is servicing, I've been all of them whether it's like the angel or the capital raiser or the founder or everything, the retail investor, the, all of it I've been. So I started leaning in more and more and it started going well. And then anyway, now Venture Crowd acquired the whole thing and I've come across and I am one of the the leaders in, in that business now. Um, yeah. And so anyway, that's where I am now at VEST.
0: Wow. So I can see that you having had all of these various business ventures um, that failed and grew and failed and grew have given you a a, a really clear idea of what works and what doesn't work and um, how a successful business or how an idea can go into a successful business. Hmm. And that is, that is pretty golden. That is really golden.
1: Yeah. The, I'd say so, like, It's easy when you're a young buck or something to discount experience, but I know through public market investing uh, and angel investing and building your own businesses that like reading the history books about how businesses grew and whatever is just not one trillionth of what it actually takes to do it and how it actually goes and and et cetera. And if you you run the parallel of the businesses and ventures that I run and then – investments Mm -hmm. that I've done and their journeys, and you pair that, there's, there's an enormous amount of learnings there that Mm -hmm. give you a really good stability, um, yeah, into, in terms of making your next decisions, whether that's investments or whatever you're going to get into.
0: Yep. So at the moment, um, you do a little bit of angel investing Mm. yourself. Mm -hmm. Are they predominantly Brisbane based companies? No, it's
1: anything. It's anything really. Uh, I actually, I don't know how big my portfolio is. Twenty something, probably. Uh, But I've been been pretty lucky. Uh, Like in the last six years or so, I haven't had any deaths of any of the ventures yet. Touchwood had a bunch of markups. Had one really, really big winner. And so, you know, the whole the whole journey that I want to that I'm trying to promote through community VC, and which like inevitably is what Vest can enable is that I believe strongly that any any venture needs like a team or a group of people around it to succeed, not yeah. a solo person like me. Because solo people, they go fast, but they destroy fast. Yep. Right? They don't go long.
0: Yeah. They have the idea and the vision, they get all excited, and the rest of the team will help facilitate that excitement in the long term mm-hmm. because they're the structure mm-hmm. to your. Exactly experience. right. Exactly
1: right. So it's like go fast, go alone, go together, go long. Yep. whatever the saying is, yep. and I like I fully believe that. <clears throat> and so what we know is all ventures, and I'm just talking about specific ventures because that's what I care yep. about. Early stage ventures, pre-seed, seed type ventures, uh, they all want the most strategic, strategically aligned, and proactive investors possible. Yep. There's no question about that. Because mm-hmm. whatever type of company you are with, whatever you're trying to achieve, there's yep. someone out there that has that connection or has that legitimate experience or skill set or whatever it is you need yep. to bridge the gap, to help you get there mm-hmm. faster, better, more efficiently, whatever. We know that. I know that. I slash we also know that there are a lot of people out there that would love to have the opportunity or, or already do offer their expertise or their value to ventures early may tip in money at that stage or made down the track and build their entire career, wealth, et cetera, off the back of going on these journeys with these incredible companies. Mm. That's for sure. Mm. I know plenty of them. I'm one of them, right? So what we're, what we're promoting to, you know, community VC in terms of like the philanthropic way that I know lots of really amazing ventures. I know lots of really amazing investors and value contributors. And because of the structures we have at Vest and and Venture Crowd, we can enable, um, you know, sweat equity, carry for remuneration. So these really flexible, long-term aligning, you know, payment mechanisms in, in return for effort. Uh, And we can allow retail and wholesale investors into all types of different deals, right? So what what I'm super duper interested in is helping people like I was, which wasn't at that time uh, an affluent or sophisticated or depending where you are, a credit investor, like two and a half million net assets or 250K a year salary for the last three years. I wasn't there, but there was ventures that I just aligned with so intensely, like zero co, like Sharesies, like if you broke down my personality into 10 bits, there's probably 10 ventures I could point you to that are the makeup of me. Yeah. So I can live like vicariously through them. But I have some pretty good skill sets that they can lean on too. And also like I've given them, given them some money, right? And if I get in early and their journey is incredible, yeah. well, as will be my wealth, mm. as will be my experience and knowledge, uh, living vicariously through their journey and being active in it as will be my impact. Mm. Right. And so I had the first legitimate taste of that with friends of mine, uh, two friends of mine, one specifically, this one of my best friend friends, they, they started a a business called cannabis doctors, Australia. They did a crowd fund, a retail crowd fund through a crowdfunding entity. I don't think exists anymore. And they, Ended up listing on the stock exchange. I'm not that good at timing, but whatever. 18 months ago or something, and at their peak, valuation was like 660 mil. So if you got in early, you got about 122 x on uplift on your money.
2: Mm.
1: Plus, also, I'm like best friends with these guys, and I'm good at certain. I have certain skill sets, so they call me every week or every whatever. So I get to not only get wealth uplift through this experience, more importantly I get to like live this entire journey and learn this entire journey of whatever the nascent idea was to 660 mil market cap.
0: And you're doing multiple KSS. at a time as well and because you're if you're just one, you're just having the knowledge and skills of so one company.
1: how fucking crazy would it be if <clears throat> you could embed effort and some money into ventures that like made up, whatever essence you you know, you know have and you are, and you put whatever your skill set is in, like you add value in that way, into a bunch of them. And let's say hypothetically, which is what we want to achieve uh, at VEST, is all of the securities or assets that you could receive in return for that effort, so whether it's carry, ESOP, sweat equity, whatever, there could be an exchange so that it's liquid. You could technically... Invest and offer value into these entities, and and on sell it the next day, mm. technically, mm. and live off of it. And so you could, you know, I can't commit to this, but imagine if you could reach whatever your base, um, you know, living needs are for Australia. Let's I think the average salary could
0: maybe s- seven hundred a week.
1: Six hundred. I think I don't know what it is. Anyway, whatever well, 65 it is, a year. let's pretend it is sixty-five a year. Twenty thousand a year. Yeah imagine you, you could make 65 or 70 a year from offering value to the 10 or 20 or whatever your portfolio approach is, ventures that fully represent what you are and what you want the world to be. And then if any of them fucking nail it, you're good forever.
2: Yeah. Wow. Like
1: what an insane thing that that would be. Mm. And so we talk about internally about the the equity economy basically. So like, Anyway, like fractionalized ownership and effort and value exchange within, particularly for, for me, ventures, but yep. we'd like to do all alternative assets. So by doing what I'm doing on the front end with Community VC, I'm already giving people a taste. Now you look at my go on my newsletter, subscribe every Friday, I list all the roles and opportunities and jobs and companies that are offering sweat or carry mm. for, for whatever particular effort that they want like today yeah. where either I have the leverage of the relationship so I could get you in on that cap table or we have a way if you're retail to get you in, you know, whatever, like for any, any kind of person that has can offer value to a company uh, like legitimate value and wants to be involved in ventures like I've just explained, I'm doing that today. I've been doing it for, well, the last month technically or something with my newsletter and then the Airtable, et cetera, but Vest, our platform, is like the machine that enables all of that. And sooner or later we'll engulf what I'm doing yep. at, at CBC. Mm.
0: And so as a company, can, can any startup join or is there certain yeah. metrics or things? Um...
1: No, um, basically pre-seed, seed stage companies. <clears throat> um, you know, we, we'd prefer not businesses that are like service-based, like yeah. something that's actually can be scalable. Mm. It can be, you know, a product, VC, B2B, software, platform, marketplace, whatever, any any vertical really. Uh, and all, all we're doing, you know, right now is lightly building these relationships with VC quality, extraordinary deals and founders yeah. and learning about their capability mismatch and how that could be fulfilled mm. and learning about all of these people that want to offer value and have value to offer yeah, just and just doing it's just technically matchmaking. Yep. It's nothing, nothing more than that. Of course we're learning crazy amounts about it and you need the infrastructure behind you to be able to execute it, mm. uh, like we have, but that's all it is.
0: Wow. Mm. And for yourself, cause I mean, look, this sounds like a phenomenal platform that is, it's hard to ask a specific question because there is so much opportunity in terms of businesses starting and, and, individuals wanting to help out, but for you yourself, what do you look for in a small business or, you know, if you had to see a pre-seed, seed seed company, um, what catches your attention? Um, and for those listening as well, if they're just starting out a business or they're thinking about different ideas, what would you say? Look, Hey, you know, these are things that you yourself would be looking for or other investors roughly would be looking for.
1: Well, every... I should know this, but every Tuesday on my LinkedIn, I post a a detailed analysis of one of the parts of a due diligence matrix. It's my own one. It's a compilation of all the stuff that I've learned. Sixty eight things. Except I I clump them clump mm-hmm. them together and I I go through them in, in detail. I think every Tuesday, just on my LinkedIn.
0: Um, Check it out, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll link it in the description below.
1: <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, so I can't go through all the 68 today, clearly, but if I sort of started with, and, th- and they're in uh, descending order, right? like the most important things are at the top. If I can't give you a green, like a go for each of these things, I'm not going to go to the next one in essence, right? And I'm going to speak <clears throat> specifically about ventures uh, in this regard because what I care about. So if I sort of <coughs> classified an outlier venture, which is, what I'm looking for it's something that can do well. I would say it's a thousand times your money, okay. your investment. But I mean, a hundred is plenty good.
0: But Would they just give you? They'd be giving you a forecast and the probability of that forecast um, actually going the way that they predict apparently is quite low, isn't it? Because you, yeah, of course, US and, as founder would be. A of over, course it is. Of optimistic. course it is.
1: But we're gonna to get to. I'll get to that. So let's let's start the very first line. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but this is what I'll be thinking, right? Is this a potential outlier business? And so an outlier business is obviously something that can be scaled. It's total addressable market is enormous. It's serviceable and obtainable markets are probably enormous too. Um, it is likely to have really high gross margins at scale <clears throat> And I, I guess like that's the very first pass. So like can this thing just be truly enormous? Yeah, yeah. So if it's ultra ultra niche, i.e. like it's got a small market in the end, even if you're really penetrative, probably not.
0: What about high competition? It's a saturated market. Yeah. Uh I guess depending on what you classify as saturated. As
1: yeah, well. yeah, it does. Uh I mean you can look up different business model types and I can't remember the technical terminology, but basically how many players can play and still be okay. effective, right? So there's certain markets where it's like winner takes all. Yeah. Okay. A Bit like Uber yep. is mostly winner take all that market.
0: But then again, sorry, to, but interestingly, so I thought Tinder was like that, right? I, when it first came out, I was like, oh, this that revolutionized dating, mm. the probability of there being other apps to um, compete against them, particularly because they're the first mover, highly unlikely. Mm. Now, what do we have? Uh, Tinder, Hinge, Bumble. Those are the handful that I know about. Um, there's more that pop up and it's all about the group that gravitates towards mm-hmm. that. So like now Tinder, they're known as a dating app is now known as, I guess, a hookup site mm-hmm. Whereas it's Bumble may be known as something else and Hinge known as something else. And, and so it gravitates. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I think again, Uber, uh, DD. we can, we can look, yeah. But I mean, if you just look at the, the market ownership, right, even Uber eats in Australia, which is, I think their most profitable country. They, they have like 85% market share. Mm-hmm. Like you could call that a winner takes all, yeah. really. I'm sure whoever has the other 15% is doing pretty good. Yeah, But they're not really. They're, mm-hmm. That's not a venture. Like that's not an outlier venture. That's a, you just made it. Yeah. So you're sitting in the middle rung there, right? So you can know that. Uh, you, I mean, you can look it up. The type of business you're getting into uh, as to basically at a macro level, how many winners or how many players can win Mm. in a sustainable, sustainable way. I I can't roll that too off the top of my head, but so look at out. Does this look like an outlier? Uh, a more technical second step, which is a bit like you were asking is, is this could be a power law venture now an outlaw uh, an outlier in essence is generally a company. This is generalizations and they change between business model type, but in a generalized sense, um, any company that can get to unicorn status, billion dollar valuation is an outlier, sort of. Not in its true sense, but that's enough. Now, usually a billion dollar company has a hundred million dollar a year revenue. Okay. Now with the risk you're taking in early stage venture, which are like, remember, ventures are like companies that are taking on slices or problems that are so acute mm. and so important and blah, blah, and trying to, whatever, take, take market share off Google or whatever they're trying to do or do something so blue ocean that it's like near impossible. Yeah. So the risk is high. Uh, and so if you look at that, that risk rating and then like, obviously you're investing in it or giving effort to it <clears throat> for it to return and IRR, like a, an annual return rate on your capital, that makes it worth like worth pursuing that risk more than it, property, more than stocks, more than whatever. And I'm not giving financial advisors, it's just generalizations, yep. yeah. right? Yep. Then for you to reach the IRR necessary for it to be impactful for you, and they would say generally in, in venture, you're looking for like 15% plus yep. annual return over the stock market. <clears throat> so if the stock market is at eight, that's sort of 50, 23% you're looking for as a return in, in venture. Best venture funds in the world, I think the best returns ever were 60%. Yeah, wow. The the ultra are 40% yep. and the good are 20%-ish. Now, if you are looking for a venture that's going to return to your portfolio approach, that kind of return, it needs to reach 100 mil rev. So billion-dollar status yeah. in seven to 10 years. Now, obviously, you want it to do earlier, yeah. right? Because if it's annualized, the shorter it's done, the higher the return rate. Okay. Sure. But in essence, you can do that. So you can take what is the service, serviceable, attainable, and addressable market. You can get a business's unit uh, economics like basically how, how much revenue they can generate per customer per year whatever yep, okay. and you can do a simple spreadsheet to s- to show at what percentage of the market is it going to take to get to 100 mil yep. and does that seem achievable because if you're telling me a 100% of the global market for it's you to make a, yeah. 100 mil it's bullshit yep. isn't it right but yeah, if it's like totally. 1% of the addressable that's pretty cool yeah okay so then <clears throat> you can then see which is pretty obvious and like this is again generalizations in venture from first revenue, you want to go triple, 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 double, double in terms of growth. Yep. That should get you in the realm of 100 mil. Let's so
0: triple, triple as in in, a, in what spirit of time are you tripling? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So
1: you, I don't know. One year 500K you in your first yep. and you're doing one and a half to two. yeah. Then you're doing, you know, whatever, six, et cetera. Okay. Triple, 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 double, 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 double. Gets you to 100 mil in seven, 10 years. Yeah. Wow. So you do, it's not a complicated spreadsheet. You do that against what someone's telling you. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I'm judging the macro environment. Then I'm judging your understanding of what this is going to take to actually be a unicorn. And then I think, if I remember correctly, the last bit of that first section. Oh, no, there's two. Uh, The third part of that section, so this is going on and on, is the the inevitability. (laughs) So
2: we'll
1: just take an easy... An easy example: You tell me that in seven years everyone's driving a flying car. I call bullshit mm. straight up. I don't need to be too smart to go. That's bullshit for sure.
0: Mm. But you could look at electric vehicles and see how fast that's penetrated the market
1: for sure. But then there's the you know there's the obvious repercussions that you're against Tesla, you're against yeah, every car maker now. Yeah, oh, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It's impossible, so hard, and you need insane money, right? Yeah, like you. I don't know. No one's just doing a pre-seed round to end up like that. Right. The so you just look at the inevitability. If they were like, we're gonna we're gonna be the flying car thing of the future and it'll be this big in 20 years, okay. We'll think about it. Right. So the inevitability and like the tailwind of what's going on is important. The cannabis doctors Australia, then they're, they're not called that anymore. They're called VIT on the ASX, but uh those guys started at like the most perfect time you could ever start of all time. Mm. like it was, you know maybe it was, a, I think, if I remember, a year before medicinal cannabis was going to be legalized in Australia, right? So mm. like it's almost like, and there's nothing to do with these guys because they're insanely good operators, but any idiot that started a medicinal cannabis company at the day that they started probably has done pretty good. Yeah, okay, yeah, so that's an important thing yeah. to think about. That sort of t- timing,
0: Knowing the market tailwind,
1: trends. I think that's really important. And then lastly, and this is the, the unfortunate bit to this is a lot of this is about your experience data points, but you see a deck or something, if there's not a wow, like I'm reading it and it could be the founding team. It could be the insight they've got. It could be the growth they've had. It could be any the problem, the acuteness of the problem, it could be anything. But I have to literally say to myself, holy fuck, like that is wild. I don't know. It's, they're going into this mark, they're going into electric vehicles and it's Elon, Chamath whoever, you know, getting into it, the head of General Motors. Yeah. That's something you want back. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, due diligence aside, that is a fucking wow. And so you need those four things to even move into actually caring about the detail, in my opinion. And if you had enough experience and you were sort of lent on enough experts for just those four points, with the venture risk portfolio model approach, you probably don't need to do any more digging, to be frank. Mm. You just pull the trigger on, depending on the, the stage of the company, if it's pre-seed, probably 30 or 40 businesses seed, you know, 30 to 20. And you just pull the trigger and you just top up on the ones that go good, and you'll be there.
0: So well, out of curiosity, why aren't you going for the other stages um, where they've actually had a prototype? Because a Look, prototype or even <clears> testing the market, I mean, that hmm. you even know if something's working. It's just that they want to expand. They don't have enough money to expand, and they're like, hey, man, help me out.
1: Okay. I have some answers for that. One is the further up the chain you go, the more legitimate tech, tech and financial due diligence you got to do. So the more technically difficult it is to actually see if what they're doing is good or not.
0: But they've got they've got like example they can show you their financial plan or their financial sales of yeah. the last year or two years and you can see the, growth. the
1: complexity of understanding proper financial models is wild. Yeah, okay. Like when I was doing the sharesies investment, the time spent and the leaning on other people. Like a friend of mine is the strategic head of finance for like one of the biggest companies. And what, the things that he told me about his understanding of that model at scale and whatever, it would have been impossible for me to figure out, like legitimately impossible without the experience. And so you can't do proper Series A plus DD without extraordinary expertise. You just can't. You really can't. And so that is a barrier. Um, the amount of time you've got to spend to figure out if it's worthwhile is a barrier. Getting on the cap table of those companies is a barrier Yeah, okay. like they've already got a, to get if they're past if they're series a plus they've raised significant money from significant people and like you have to show them insane value to get on that cap table i would say mm. uh, which is really really difficult yeah to even get to talk to those founders is really difficult which brings me to my last point at that stage they have important people with important money with important help that they can give so what, like, why would they take your money mm. when it's over going to be oversubscribed anyway?
0: But I guess as well, like, so let's say for instance, you have a company that um is relatively small. They've been going for like a year or two, have been making a small amount. You can see growth, but for them to get on those big boy tables, they need to have a really great business, like let's say an amazing app or a decentralized system or whatever it is, revolutionizing. So that's like an in between where it's not something that has done really well, but it, like, as in it will be swarmed with these big, big players. Cause when I was looking at your company, um, community VC, it seems like, and as you were saying before, you have all of these companies that can register without any, um, metrics or benchmarks mm-hmm. or whatever, and then you've got all of these individuals that can provide skills and talents mm-hmm. and attributes. Yeah, I was just, I mean, I don't know, I was just thinking it's just so interesting because pre-seed and seed, it's like, that's an idea. And at the end of the day, it's a business plan. But to climb over the wall, as in you can have the best idea, but once you actually start putting it into practice, you recognize, well, hang on a second, actually what I thought the market wanted is not necessarily what the market wants. And you have a lean startup and blah, blah, blah. But once you've actually tested the market and started getting an inch of growth, but it depends on the business. I mean, there's so many variations.
1: Yeah, there are some pretty clear global benchmarks. for each business stage, each business type that, like, we know. I mean, you can look at Crunchbase and PitchBook and whatever, and they literally tell you all the companies that precede around the world that are in fintech marketplace, blah, 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 at this stage they have this kind of growth, they have this kind of custom account, blah, blah, yeah. blah. They have it. And so you turn up and you're not within that or kicking the shit out of it, mm. so you're going to have a hard time.
0: Is there any... um? Uh, anything that people can read. Um, do you have any resources that people can that I can post in the podcast for people who have businesses to look against and and say, okay, where do I fit within this?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, Crunchbase and PitchBook. Yeah, I like two places you can start uh, to see every every. I would say that every investor who's worth, you know, worthwhile. Yeah has what's called a stack rank and it's what I was explaining. I have 68 rows of things that I want to have clarity on and the point of the 68 at the bottom is has metrics mm. and I have like reference pages in my spreadsheet which goes, if it's a marketplace at this stage, they're usually like this. So I can actually just like quickly reference, Decide, right? Yep. But in essence, if you think about a, a stack rank, it's a bunch of companies in columns against each other that are color-coded against each other with financial metrics that drop out the bottom. Mm. And so if you show me your stuff and you get through the, like my mental hoops, at the end of the day, you can pretty much see based on the color coding and the numbers that drop out yep. as to which one you should go with. Now, wow. it's that's not the North Star. Mm. There's gut and personality and all sorts of stuff yep. involved in that. Yep. But you can quickly eliminate, right, which is my point of if you could get those top four right. If you're taking a venture portfolio approach, you're probably just using those top four rows and going at whatever your number is, 30 of them, and seeing what falls out. Yeah. And
0: I guess um, this might be a long question, but what every person, every I'm guessing every venture capitalist would have their own metrics that they would be interested in, yep. what they would be looking for yep. based on their own past experience and what they understand yep. about the market and exactly. so on and so forth. So it's so different.
1: Exactly. And because, well, a fund... As a specific mandate that they've agreed, their investors that they're going to follow, right? Yeah. So they're very specific, uh, often. But angels and you know, high net worth, whatever you want to call them, uh, they're, they're more flexible, I would say, in in the approach. Um, and I think you know it does happen. You sometimes you just meet a founder. Uh, actually, the CDA guy, the Compass Dogs Australia guy, I actually backed him. One of them in his business before and he fucked it up.
0: Oh, yeah. and he backed back to the game. Of
1: course. No, but that's because
0: yeah, of the round. Right. It's he... like,
1: yes, exactly. Yeah, it's okay. like, as I suggested with the Swiss guy, yeah. he would have given me an, yeah. another go. Yeah. Because he- I he- saw his cleverness, his ethics, his whatever. Like yeah. it was sort of, there are other reasons mm. that it didn't work. Mm. Not, not his ethic, not the way that he approached, nothing like that. Everything he de- did, I loved. Yeah, cool. It just didn't work because of the market, because of whatever, whatever.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And actually, this is going on a slight little side thing, but now that we're experiencing um, a higher level of inflation, or we're starting to, um, and obviously the media and everything's talking about it, which is to ideally reduce expenditure, what effect do you think that that would have on the investment market, if any, and have you seen any? Oh, yeah, of course. It
1: has. <coughs> it has. You ask anyone. Ask you could probably look up the blogs or the LinkedIn of any investors, uh, any funds, any capital raising groups, <clears throat> anything like that, and they're just talking about tightening up and yeah. focusing on their existing portfolio to get them through this period, yeah. uh, You know, advising their portfolio to stop burning and get to profitability as quickly as possible, yeah. etc. So <clears throat> raising money at the moment is more difficult. Uh, making money. more difficult everything's more difficult and so you have to be much more cognizant about yeah your capital allocation how you're managing what you're approaching etc because you know what's what's worse what's worse ignoring everyone and just keep plowing and it doesn't work and whatever all of the insights and momentum and staff and relationships everything you built you shut them down when the market's good again you start something new Mm. or you start that same thing again it doesn't make sense yeah if you bunker down and you survive, what's likely to happen is you're going to build deeper relationships with those customers yep. you got, with those staff you got, etc. And when the market picks up again, you're going to absolutely crush.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Makes sense, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And um, with AI and you know um, the craze about that, have you seen any? I guess it's still quite relatively new, but looking at what shifts you've seen currently, and maybe what shifts you potentially predicted to see um with this transition
1: yeah uh, funnily enough i'm sort of like in general i actually don't remember the bell curve but i'm a bit of a late adopter to mm. things i like to see that things seem to be working properly before caring yeah. and i say that's a bit the same with ai uh, i would say like my general macro lens on it is that in terms of like ventures and building businesses is that as there has been with funds and GPs and et cetera, the trend is towards solo GPs and micro funds, like solo investment managers, people who leverage their personal brand and their network Mm -hmm. to be successful rather than big brands and building a big brand, et cetera. And I think I I see it more and more commonly like, tweets or whatever about people who have built, a, you know, a Roblox version of a game for themselves and they're making 30 million bucks a year. And it's just like them solo or them and three people.
2: Yeah.
1: Or the tech stack that they've put together that's Zapier and blah, 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 who cares? There's like a 50-stage tech stack, but it's a solo dude making 80 grand a month doing basically nothing. Yeah. You know, that? I think that that with the creator style, solo economy, whatever, is <clears throat> going to become more and more and more true. Mm. I think, the you know, the big value obviously is still in building big brands. I think that has to be true.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but the rise of like the individual, very small, only semi-funded businesses, it's going to become more and more true, I think.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. And what advice, um, as we slowly wrap up, is that you would give to those listening who are starting businesses um, or thinking about it, you know, what does that look like for somebody like you, who's obviously quite experienced in this field?
1: If if we summarised all of the points <clears throat> I'd made along um, this podcast today, I think that's that's probably it. Like... I think in the most succinct way you you only want to start something if it's something you really seriously give a fuck about yep. like that it is and going to be in the future like seriously because it gets can get so rough and as soon as you have something else to jump into lean into or it gets a bit hard or whatever you can just shelve it yep. you know uh so i think that's really important and i think yeah I think that that's the most important starting point and looking at it through the lens of like in terms of what it could be in its fruition is am I good at it am I bad at it? Mm. do I love it do I hate it so what what am I willing to do and not and etc and thinking about and looking at how it will evolve and what it takes to to operate it uh, and then being hyper focused. About who is your exact customer, who exactly you know what exactly are their needs, how exactly can you best service them whatever I mean I'm just preaching the same shit no totally it's, it's, but it's like it's
0: summarizing ten customer
1: first ten customers first <coughs> do the best job ever hundred customers do the best job ever unscalable semi scalable thousand customers do the best job ever slightly scalable whatever and just move like that because it's those you know, it's the personalization, the unique insights, which are the key. Yeah. Like scale, maybe AI will change this, but scale kind of represents offering more shit to more people without knowing them as much. Mm. You know, so you're not as deep. That's why, like, you know, coaches are so great, mm. but it's just because it's me and you. It's yeah. intense, right? Yeah. But then if you go on Calm app, well, obviously they have something right, but it's not the same as talking to your coach. Yeah. But they didn't just start Calm like because they just thought it was a sick idea. They had insane insights and growth Mm. and, you know, incremental day-by-day insight loops to continue growing that into the product that it is today. Um, But always, yeah, looking into the future to see. If you do care for something to scale, by the way, like I said, everyone, I reckon most people ever would just choose and hold that first little Tokyo I built. Mm. And sometimes I wish I did, but it's not my personality mm. to do that either. Uh, so I think those two things.
0: And although this might go on the back end of that, I'd love to ask every single person um, if you had one message to share with the world, being a podcast, uh, what would that message be?
1: It would be cheeky to say follow my newsletter, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, what What's the message? Um Hmm. Well, I th- I think <clears throat> definitely, for sure, it's about like, this sounds cheesy, doesn't it? But like believing in yourself. Uh, yeah, I think so many people, I don't know, I don't, I don't know why, but people just doubt themselves so much. You just got to give it a go, you know, particularly in like, Australia, for example, we're crazy lucky like bullshit lucky, it's, you know, it's almost impossible to become homeless here. And even when you do, I worked for orange sky laundry, like it's pretty good. It's not too bad for them. You know, it's not like a skid Row in LA. <clears throat> and so I don't particularly understand why people don't take more risks here and why the whole economy is sort of centric around property. It doesn't really make sense to me. And to be frank, like it's boring as fuck. It is. Like, it's so fucking boring. And the returns are trash comparatively mm. to doing other things properly.
0: It's stability. People are afraid of, yeah. of what they don't know and but, are taking risks. Yeah,
1: but for what? Mm. It's just it's boring. It's so boring, man. You get one shot. Yeah. Like, you legit get, well, at least I reckon, you get one shot. And so you might as well send it.
0: Love it. Thank you so much guys uh, for listening. And um if you want to get in contact with you or what's the best way
1: My LinkedIn. Uh, I just only Yep. I mean my email's attached to it, I'm pretty sure, but that's all I really use.
0: Perfect. I'll link that um in the show notes below for people cool. who are listening. Thank you so much. Yeah.